Well, all right, we are, uh, we're off to an exciting morning today. I'm pretty, pretty pumped about the message this morning and what I hope God does in your life um, through what we're about to receive together. Um, I want to say a couple things on the onset of the message. Um, we're going to cover a lot of information. Um, however, um, my goal for today is not to transfer information in this time, but to do a couple different things. One, to overwhelm us in the significance and the beauty that is God's word that we would see that there is no end to it and its reliability and its consistency and the way it um, validates itself and the way it validates Christ and Christ validates it, that really today, if nothing else, when you leave here today, you would leave with a much higher respect and reverence um, for God's word and maybe even a deeper desire to know it better. And, uh, and so everything that I'm gonna be preaching through in the way of notes is available to you in your worship guide, the scriptures for you to take home. There's still a place to write, but there are all the scriptures I'm gonna be going through. Um, most of them, if not all of them, are right there for you to take home and to go into deeper study. Today, what I wanna do is I wanna jump over and just cover the whole big package and hand it to you. And so that's what we're gonna do today is we're still continuing Acts 2 in our Marks of Disciples series. We made it to the beginning of verse 42 last week. This is Acts 2, 42. And, uh, and so I wanna begin in 41 and then read into 42 to set the pace for what we're gonna be talking about today. So beginning in Acts 2, verse 41, the end of Peter's sermon, these folks heard it and said, what do we need to do? Peter says, repent, be baptized. So verse 41 says this, so those who received his word, this is Peter preaching, his word, were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Pretty big day, life of the church. Verse 42 then says, and they, that's the 3,000 souls, who just became Christians. This is what they did, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. Okay, so this is where we're gonna go today. Uh, two things, first thing I wanna do is recap devoted. We spent last week entirely on really this one word, what it looks like and means to be devoted. And so what we saw very uh, simply from the text is a definition of devotion. So I wanna recap that really twofold. One is this, the idea here in devotion is that uh, the, when you see the word devoted here, it means to stay close or to serve in close personal relationship with. Okay, so implied between people, it's this idea of close proximity, okay? We're in the same place, same time. Uh, but not only that, there's this, this process of serving together. So when there's a task to be taken on by somebody in the church, it's taken on by the church as a whole. So we work together on the same task, okay, to serve together. It's this idea of devotion. The second part of it uh, is this, you may remember from last week, is to continue to do something with intense effort. So as we serve together, we're doing it with intense effort, with the implication of despite difficulty. So there's this expectation that the task that Jesus has called us to do together, to serve together on, is going to be difficulty, but despite that, we do it with intense effort. Because that's, that's the definition of this word, devoted. And so what we're gonna do now is take that word devoted this week and the next five and apply it to the, uh, the five things that this early group of believers was devoted to, the first of which is the apostles' teaching. So we're gonna take a step back. Before we just assume that uh, Luke, as he records this, is talking about the Bible, we're gonna journey through a thought process. We're gonna ultimately end with what the apostles were actually teaching. So if we're gonna be devoted to the apostles' teachings, we need to know what they're teaching, right? And so we're gonna begin with this first is to see what Jesus' take was on the scriptures. We're gonna look at what Jesus said about the Bible, about the scriptures. We're also gonna look at what the scriptures said about Jesus or say about Jesus. We're gonna look at what the apostles did with the scriptures, how they handled the, the Old Testament, and how they even handled their own writings, and then we're ultimately gonna to get to a place where we look specifically at what are these guys teaching? 
If we're going to devote ourselves to it, we need to know what the apostles' teachings are. And we're, we're going to see then this unique relationship between the Bible and Christians and why it is such a sacred text. Now, now chances are you grew up in a home, maybe not everybody, but most of us grew up in a home where the Bible was revered on some level. It may not have been opened much, uh, may not have been a whole lot of understanding what's in it, but there was this mystique about it. There was this sense of, of, of this is important. Even, even in grade school, you know, I can remember the Bible was something to be revered. When, when we would talk about the Bible, it was an important document of some sort. We didn't necessarily know why. And I found that as I became a Christian, uh, it took years and years before I ever realized why the Bible was revered so. Actually, what I'm going to show you today is what I've learned over 20 years. What I wish had been shown to me at the very beginning so that I could put it all together in one package, I hope to do for you today. So let's get into this conversation. Now, when you talk about the Bible, if you're talking about the Bible within Christianity, um, a couple things. One, if you are a Christian, there is some level of faith approach to the Bible, meaning it's more than just a historical document. Okay, So if you're a Christian and you believe in Jesus, who's described and written about in the Bible, on some level you're approaching the Bible in faith. Now from there it begins to fan out on a spectrum of, of um, something that may be uh, influenced by God, maybe God influenced the writing of it, some maybe even more than that God inspired it like the themes and topics that these guys wrote about, he inspired it, all the way to this idea of, of dual authorship, that the Holy Spirit of God literally with the hands of these writers wrote this, this book we call the Bible. Okay, so we're going to talk through that. We're going to see what the Bible says about itself. But on, on, no matter what category you fall into, there is a faith approach to the text if you're a Christian. And that will lead us into conversations about um, accuracy. Um, did Jesus call the Bible inerrant without error? Did the apostles consider the scriptures as inerrant, accurate, perfect? We're going to talk also about um, authority. What authority does the Bible have in our lives as believers? Okay? So no matter what church you walk into that's Christian, you'll find influence of the Bible. Okay? Some are simply this idea that it's, uh, it's a set of documents that should maybe influence our lives or encourage our lives all the way to the other end of the spectrum of, no, this has authority and it governs our lives. So this is what we're going to do today. Beginning with what did Jesus say about the Bible. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to walk through text of Scripture. And we're going to throw them up on the screen. If you want to try to flip with me, you're welcome to. However, I would encourage you to follow along, to listen to the, what's being spoken, and maybe go home and further study and really look these things up, because we're going to move pretty fast. So here we go. What did Jesus say about the Bible? Okay. Uh, in your New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew is the first one uh, to appear, not necessarily the first one that was written, but it's the opening of your New Testament. Okay? And Matthew opens with this introduction of who Jesus is and this first famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. So as Jesus is breaking the ice, he's teaching with authority and, 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 and explaining things to people, he says in this first sermon in verse 17, this is Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and prophets. So we need to stop for just a minute. What in the world is he talking about? For the, for the, for the Jews, okay, which Matthew is, the Old Testament, um, your Old Testament, Genesis through Malachi, for the Jewish people, they ordered it a little bit different, but it's the same books. They would consider it basically in three categories, the law, the prophets, and the writings, or the law, the prophets, and the psalms, because the writings were just a collection of all the poetry. Psalms was really big. Sometimes it would be called writings, sometimes psalms. So anytime you see 
anybody in history, specifically in the New Testament Jewish context, saying the law and the prophets, they're referring to this Old Testament sacred text. Okay, it was canonized, it was done. They weren't disputing what belonged in it. It was done. And so Jesus says this, I haven't come to abolish any of that, none of it. He goes on to say, I have not come to abolish them, but instead to fulfill them. So really, two profound things. First of all, nothing about the Old Testament is null and void. I haven't come to abolish one part of it. However, the Old Testament is not yet fulfilled. However, the Old Testament is not yet complete. But I have come, Jesus, by his own declaration, to complete it, to fulfill it. Now, if you continue on in the Gospel of Matthew, you'll catch him in these disputes with Pharisees off and on and, and, and really glean some beautiful, um, some beautiful the- theology from Jesus. Um, in one of those uh, debates in Matthew 22, um, Jesus calls the Pharisees out and tells them that they're wrong and, and just, just says right to their face, you're wrong. So Matthew 22, 29, he says, but Jesus answered them, you are wrong. Here's why. Not because I don't like you, not because you're mean, Here's why you're wrong. You know neither the, what? Scriptures, the Old Testament. Now, it's, what's ironic is these guys had it memorized. Like, like, had it memorized, but they didn't know it. Here's, here's why. You're wrong. You're in error, the NIV says, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. He's going to go on to say, the Gospel writer John records Jesus saying this, if you believed Moses, who wrote first five books of the Old Testament, okay, primary author of the Old Testament. If you believed him, I know you have it memorized, but if you actually believed him, you would have believed me. Here's why. He wrote about me. So there's no, there's no question as to what Jesus' thoughts were on the Old Testament, is there? Like, he's calling the Old Testament inerrant. Like, the reason your life is in error and mistake is because you don't know these beautiful, sacred, inerrant texts. So these were more than just books of poetry, uh, accounts of history. Jesus is saying they contain no error and they contain power. And if you really knew them, you would know me and you would know the power of God. So there's no debate. If you are a Christian then, right, you say, I believe in Jesus as my Savior, then, then you take upon yourself what he believed the Old Testaments to be, the Old Testament documents to be. And this is, this is his approach. Now, more significant or more profound or more explicit than that, in Luke 24, this is post-resurrection, Jesus pulls it all into one conversation with these guys. He had been teaching his whole life, or not his whole life, he had been teaching the last three years with his life to these guys. Not just lecturing like this, but living out the sermons with them. That's what I'm going to say. So living this out with them, after he resurrects, he's talking with these guys in Luke 24, and he says this. He's summing it all up. And he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. He's talking about before his death. Everything I spoke to you and taught you, these are my words. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Like The Old Testament is beautiful and it's without error, but it's longing to be fulfilled. It must be. Then in verse 45, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He began to teach them and explain the Old Testament to them. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these 
things. So Jesus is saying everything the Old Testament promised was fulfilled in me. Everything in the law, everything that was written in the prophets, everything that was written in the Psalms was written about me. Now, right, as Christ followers, that we need to know that. Right? That helps us read the Old Testament. We read the Old Testament listening for, looking for, for who? For Jesus. Now let's look at what the Old Testament says about Jesus then. Let's look at what the Bible says about Jesus. I'm going to show you just real quickly this beautiful connection between Genesis 12 and Galatians 3. Let me put it in perspective for you, though. The first 11 chapters of your Bible, Genesis 1 through 11, is really just an opening, setting kind of the scene, uh, laying out the tone of things, showing the fall of man. The real narrative picks up Genesis 12, 1. Okay, so everything else is just kind of an intro. The narrative, though, of the Old Testament begins 12, 1. And this begins with a man named Abraham, who at this point in time was married, had no children, still lived in his dad's home. So Genesis 12, 1, God comes to Abraham and says this. Now the Lord said to Abraham, I will make you, or I'll make of you, a great nation. That of you is meaning the idea from him, like his lineage, his seed. He didn't have any kids yet. But I will make of you a great nation. In verse 3, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God just made a promise to Abraham. Didn't explain it, Right? kind of vague. We understand that he's going to have kids and it's going to, they're going to become a great nation and somehow all nations are going to be blessed through them. Now what happens through the, through the unfolding of the rest of your Old Testament narrative is, is God unfolding this promise. Okay, And so we get to the New Testament, to Galatians 3. I want you to look at something Paul said about what we just read in chapter 3, 16 of Galatians. Now the promises of the Old Testament were made to Abraham and to his offspring. This is incredibly important to hear what Paul's saying. It does not say, and to offsprings. Why is that important? Because Abraham had more than one child, right? Isaac and Ishmael. And, and so he's saying, no, through one of his children, God was going to bring about this promise, one offspring, referring. And so he didn't say offsprings, referring to many, but, he, but referring to one. He said this, and to your offspring. This is Paul writing, and what, look at what he says. Who is the Christ? There's absolutely no question, right, what the New Testament believes about the Old Testament. Jesus says, I, I, I am the Christ King, the Old Testament prophesied. Everything the Old Testament promised to you is true, and it's here, and it's me. And so Paul, reflecting on that, is going, yeah, all, even the promise to Abraham was fulfilled in Jesus. This offspring lineage from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob all the way down to King David and and this is where the gospel writer Matthew starts, isn't it? The, the lineage of Abraham, showing us what? That Joseph is in the lineage of Abraham, and here's the seed he was talking about. So the Bible paints this beautiful interconnected picture that the two really are kind of dependent on one another. You can't really understand the New Testament unless you really pour yourself into the Old Testament. However, right, you don't fully understand the Old Testament unless you understand the New Testament, and, and they're, they're supposed to work together. Now, more specifically, um, when you get into the Gospels, um, the, the opening of your New Testament, these Gospel writers are after something, okay? If you just step back and take a look at it, you can very clearly see they're all writing the story of Jesus, 
Okay? That's the theme. However, when you really look into the text, you're going to hear these authors saying something to us, that like they're after something. They're, they want to show you something incredibly important. Each writer, writing really from his own perspective, some of them writing from the influence of others, however, they're all after one unique purpose, to show you something about Jesus. So, so Matthew starts with a genealogy, right? Matthew 1. Now, genealogies can be boring. Anybody else get bored in the genealogies? If you don't, you're just a, a Bible nerd. Um, I, I love you. I love Bible nerds. I, I tend to be one sometimes. It's okay. Like it's, it's an affectionate, affectionate thing. But like genealogies are boring. However, they are so critical to the narrative. And so what Abraham does is he starts with a genealogy. He wants to show you something about Jesus. Look at what he says in verse 1 and then 16. These are the bookends of that genealogy. So-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so. Look at the top, look at the bottom. This is what he said, verse 1. The, the book, so what he's saying, what he's writing, he's calling a book. This book that I'm writing, the book, it is the book of the genealogy of Jesus the Christ. Christ was not his given name. So he's already saying something remarkably theologically about, theological about Jesus. Right? The Christ is an Old Testament thing, Okay. So he says, Jesus the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So he's explaining to us, right? And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom, this is verse 16, of whom Jesus was born, who is called what? The Christ. Now, um, the two words that get kind of used synonymously are Messiah and Christ. They both really mean the same thing. Um, the Hebrew uh, rendering would be Messiah, which literally means the anointed one. Okay? And so as they looked forward to somebody who would come, they were thinking, this will be an anointed one. It's very similar to like 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, where the kings are being anointed, Saul and David and Solomon, the idea that this person is set apart. So they were looking for an anointed one. In Greek, it gets rendered Christ. So when you see that appear, you're talking about somebody special here, not just a, 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 you know, a fantastic leader, great teacher, but somebody who's literally anointed. So what Matthew is saying, this Jesus that you know, this Jesus from Nazareth, He's the anointed one. He's the one the Old Testament promised to come as a Christ king. And he opens his gospel that way. So he's, he's screaming at us. You've got to get this about this Jesus. I'm going to tell you lots of stories. He walks on water. He calms the seas. He turns wine or water into wine. He heals the deaf, the lepers. Like he, He's amazing. However, I'm telling you all this to tell you one thing. He's the Christ. And each gospel writer does this. The gospel of Mark very simply, in Mark 1, 1 says, the beginning. So you know you're reading the beginning of his story. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. Like Mark, doesn't, he doesn't pull any punches. He cuts straight to the point. Everything you're going to read from here on out is about how Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, period. That's what he's after. Uh, Luke beautifully opens up with the first chapter uh, leading into this, uh, the birth scenario of Jesus. We use it at Christmas a lot. He gives us a lot of details. However, Luke's point is also very clear. If you look at 2.11, chapter 2, verse 11, early on in his gospel, he says, for unto you, here's the point of all this, unto you is born this day in the city of David, so he's connecting us to David, right, through the lineage up to Abraham, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Everything that I'm going to write to you about Jesus, I'm writing to show you that he is the Christ, the one the Old Testament promised to us. He is Christ the Lord, or Christ the King. The gospel writer John, he's, I love John. Like, <clears throat> if you approach the gospel of John and, uh, and you, you don't get what he's after, like at the end of his gospel, twice he tells you. 
just, just comes out and says it. Like, I love John. John 20, verse 30, towards the end of the gospel, he says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. Okay, so he's just letting you know, there's so much more I could have written about. And, and this gets my heart stirring. Like, I, I want to know more. However, John wants to let you know, that's not the point, though. Like, here's the point of why I've written this gospel account. But these, verse 31, were written so that you may believe something Here's what it is, that Jesus is the Christ. It's the only reason I've written this gospel account. If you don't get this, you didn't get my gospel. I wrote this to show you Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's what the gospel writers are after. That's it. Okay? So Old Testament, according to Jesus, is written to show you that he is the Christ, the King. That's what he says about himself. Okay? Then we get into these gospels, these accounts from these four men, and they say, listen, I agree, we're here to show you the same thing. This is what we want you to get here, that this Jesus is the Christ King that was promised in the Old Testament. Now, I want to look at just a couple of examples of how Jesus fulfills um, the promises of the Old Testament. Um, depending on what uh, biblical theologian or scholar you talk to, you'll get a variance on how many prophecies Jesus fulfills, Okay. And so on the conservative end, it's 60, 65, specific. Like, you, like these are specific. Like born of a virgin in Bethlehem kind of stuff. Rode a donkey. Very specific details. Um, you, you look a little broader. Some on the other end will say, man, it's closer to like 280, 280 prophecies. I, I've, I've been through the list multiple times. I tend to lean on 83 plus. Like there's no doubt these are referring to promises from the Old Testament. Okay? So um, Jesus is fulfilling. I'm just going to pull up a couple. We already saw Genesis 12 into Galatians 3. Um, if you look into, uh, into Exodus, here's what's going on. God has delivered this nation that he's built out of Abraham. Okay? He said, I'll make a great nation there, now a great nation. He pulls them out of Egyptian slavery. And then he, because in, in chapter 9 of Exodus, because he has brought them out as his people, he then tells them to live like his people. 20 is the Ten Commandments. And God enters into this Mosaic covenant with the people. Okay, so God enters into this beautiful agreement with the people. He makes a promise to them. Again, continuing that promise of Abraham. I'm promising you something. Well, in the Old Testament, just like the New Testament, covenants are ratified with blood. Which seems kind of weird to us, right? Like we're going to read in just a second where Abraham like throws the blood on the people. And, right, I know you're so thankful that we're <laughs> recipients of Jesus' blood now. We don't actually do that in our services anymore. They used to do that at these key moments to say something about the covenant, that this covenant, right, like should it be broken, right, deserves the shedding of blood. Like this is the most serious thing that a person can enter into. And so if you look at Exodus 24, the commandments are given. Exodus 24, 8 says, Moses took the blood and he threw it on the people and he said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord made with you in accordance with all these words. Saying, God just made you a promise. And I know this blood's gonna get your attention. I want, you, I want to have your attention because I just told you the words of God and he made you a promise. And so anywhere this idea of covenant comes up, you see this idea of blood being shed. Like they would literally do that. Like two people would come into agreement, they would sacrifice an animal and you would see blood spilled out. Why? To show everybody there the severity of this covenant. This language continues all throughout the Old Testament as you see the covenant promise moving forward. However, I want you to see something specific in Jeremiah. So you get down towards the prophets and you get to Jeremiah. Jeremiah begins to talk about, and other prophets begin to talk about, a new covenant. Okay? A new covenant that was coming. 
So anytime they would hear the word covenant, they would think, oh, remember how Moses threw the blood on the people? This was a big deal. And Jeremiah began to say, yeah, and guess what? God's bringing a new covenant to you. And so in Jeremiah uh, 31, 31 through 33, he says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. This got the attention of the people, right? Oh, man, I wonder if he's going to, like, Throw blood on us, right? This is kind of weird. He's going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the one, or not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. He's talking about Exodus 24, that covenant he made, okay? And so then he says, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. That beautiful husband language that you see. It helps you understand the book of Hosea, the prophet Hosea, his words, when Jesus is um, uh, like allegorically referred to as this husband who pursues this, this prostitute wife, this harlot wife. God's in the Old Testament narrative. He's the husband who pursues us though we're unfaithful. And so they broke the promise just like a harlot breaks a promise to her husband. But look at 33. For this is the covenant that I will make. This is the new one with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Like that, they, I shall be their God and shall be my people. It's the same promise he made to Abraham. He's still unfolding this beautiful promise. And it's by no mistake that at the, the, the last supper, the Passover meal, Jesus sits down with these mainly Jewish people to take a Passover meal that they had been taking year after year after year since the Exodus, right? Since they had that covenant where he threw the blood on the people, they would celebrate this Passover meal where they would literally take a cup of wine and reflect on the blood of the covenant. And so Jesus takes this cup of the wine the night before he goes to the cross at this beautiful Passover meal and he, he's looking into this, this cup of wine and it, the three of the four gospel writers record some version of this, but Matthew records this. He's, he's looking at the disciples, he said, see this? This is my blood of the covenant. And Luke says, adds the word new in there my new covenant. So there's no mistaking what Jesus was communicating and proclaiming to these people. Remember how God made covenants with blood? Remember how the prophet Jeremiah and others prophesied of this new covenant? I'm here to fulfill that new promise. But I'm here to do it with my blood. This cup that you drink is the cup of my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so we see these two testaments, these old and new, these two covenants, these beautiful interdependent texts that come together to portray the promise of God to the world. Now, we could continue on for days looking at these prophecies. They're beautiful. Matter of fact, uh, here's a teaser for next year. We're going to spend a lot of time doing this. We're going to spend a lot of time looking um, for Jesus in the Old Testament um, I want to teach us how to do it responsibly, right? We don't want to wedge Jesus into every story and go, oh, look, there's Jesus. We want to do it responsibly. But next year, we're going to spend our time looking for Jesus and this beautiful connection between the Testaments from an Old Testament perspective. And really, one year won't be enough, but that's what we're going to do for a sermon series. Okay. I want to look at something now. I want to move to the apostles, because this is where we started. These new believers, they were devoted to the apostles' teachings. So what I want to hear for just a minute from the New Testament, uh, I want to hear especially the book of Acts that records these opening sermons, what did the apostles teach? That's incredibly important understanding uh, Acts 2.42, right? Through the rest of Acts, what did Luke record these guys teaching? 
But the first question we have to ask really begins before that, what did Jesus ask them to teach? What did he ask them to teach? After his resurrection, he talks with the guys. He says, here's your mission. Right? This is Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore go, or go therefore to all nations. That's Genesis 12. Galatians 3, go to all nations, right? Doing what? Making disciples. Here's what I want you to do. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe or obey all that I have commanded. So Jesus told these apostles, go teach what I taught. Go teach with authority what I taught with authority. Take my perspective on the, on the text, and you take it and you teach the people. Now, this is exactly what they do. Um, I encourage you, there's a fun study that you can do, is just study the sermons from the book of Acts and see how this opening church preached about Jesus. It's beautiful. I'm going to hit just three excerpts from three sermons. I'm going to start with Apollos. So the narrative of Apollos in Acts 18, he's not a real uh, profound, known, known um, apostle. However, he, um, he's recorded in, in Acts as one who preached and taught. And so in Acts 18, Apollos, uh, starting in verse 27, and when he, Apollos, wished to cross to Achaia, um, the brothers encouraged him, okay? And now he wasn't well-known, so they do this, and they wrote to the disciples to welcome him, okay? This is not a well-known guy, but the other disciples wrote and said, here, receive this guy, Apollos. He's one of us. And so Apollos shows up. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. So these are Christians. This is what Apollos is doing to encourage the Christians. Verse 28, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public. How did he do it? Did he just stand up and say, you guys are wrong? Look at what he does. Showing by the scriptures, which is what? The Old Testament, that the Christ was Jesus. This is what Apollos was teaching. Does sound, sound familiar? Sound consistent? The same thing the gospel writers want you to get, Apollos is, Apollos is preaching the same message in Acts 18. Look at what Peter preaches. Um, we heard him open in Acts 2 with this opening sermon. Then in Acts 3, we catch some more discourse and preaching from Peter. So if you go to Acts 3, here's an excerpt from what Peter was preaching in verse 18. But what God foretold, so he's preaching publicly, what God foretold, so it's the idea God spoke beforehand, by the mouth of all the prophets. What's Peter talking about? He's talking about the Old Testament. Right? He's saying, everything that God spoke about beforehand through these men, here's what you need to understand, that his Christ, his anointed one, his coming Christ King, would suffer. And he thus did what? Fulfilled. What did Jesus say about the scriptures? I haven't come to abolish any of them. I've come to fulfill them. And Peter's saying, he did it. Everything he set out to do. Now think about that. I mean, you're covering millenniums of history. Um, when Moses stopped to write down the first five books of the Bible, it was probably around 1500 BC, okay, moving forward. It, it wasn't happening then. He was recounting then. Uh, then you get narrative moving forward chronologically from 1500-ish BC moving forward. That's a lot of history. And Jesus and the, and the gospel writers and the, new, these apostles are saying the same thing. Everything that was written all the way back to Genesis 1. Like, that's how John begins his gospel, isn't it? In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. Does it sound familiar? In the beginning, in the beginning. John's taking you all the way back to Genesis 1. They're all saying the same thing. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that that book promised. Now, 
Let's move to uh, Paul for just a second, and then we're going to come back and look at what the New Testament writers say about the New Testament. Right? So we have a clear reverence for the inerrant, right, infallible, beautiful, perfect Old Testament sacred text. From Jesus, from his apostles, they had high regard for the Old Testament. We're even seeing an interdependence now between the two. However, what I want you to see is, is what the, the New Testament writers said about each other's writings and about their own writings, okay? So from here, look at Paul. This is just continuing under what Paul was teaching in Acts 17. Um, Paul in, in 17.2 says, Luke records this, and Paul went in, uh, Paul would go into the synagogues and temples and, and teach, which is a really brave thing to do, by the way, right into the Jewish heartbeat, and he would teach these things. And, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, okay? Paul had high regard for the Old Testament, and he would actually teach the Jews from the Old Testament, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus who I proclaim to you is the Christ. So Paul had high reverence for the Old Testament. He used it to prove Jesus. Now, we get into the writings of Peter later on in the New Testament, those letters. You get letters from John, letters from Peter, letters from Jude. Um, Peter writes several letters. And in, uh, in 2 Peter, um, Peter says some profound things about the, the, the text, the scriptures. Look at, um, this is chapter 1 of 2 Peter, starting in verse 20. Peter says this, Knowing that this, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture, pointing which way? Back to the Old Testament, none of that, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. What he's saying is this, we believe God was speaking. However, we, we, we don't put into the equation that, 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 that Micah or Hosea or Jeremiah or Daniel was interpreting it before they wrote it. They didn't, they didn't write their own interpretations down. Instead, look at what he says. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along. And we don't have time to get into it. That word is, is beautiful and remarkable to understanding what they believed about the scriptures. Carried along by the Holy Spirit. What Peter is saying is that he believed in dual authorship. He believed that the texts were so much more than just inspired. He believed the Holy Spirit of God literally superintended the words. There was no median of man interpreting, this is what God said, this is how I'll write it. He literally believed the Holy, believed the Holy Spirit of God was superintending the words of the scriptures. And that was his view on the Old Testament. Okay? So you move forward in that, uh, a couple chapters later in the same letter, uh, Peter begins to talk about his own writings and the writings of Paul. This is Peter in the New Testament talking about the New Testament now. And so he says in verse 1 of chapter 3, this is now the second letter I'm writing to you. He's talking about what you're reading. This, what you're reading, this text, is the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, so here's my point in both of my letters, I am doing this. I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. So I'm trying to remind you of something. I'm trying to stir something up within you by reminding you of two things. Here they are. That you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets. So I'm writing in my letters because I want to stir up within you this remembrance of what those guys said. So he's talking about the Old Testament. But then look at what he says. And, so this is the second thing, the commandment of the Lord and Savior. Remember what Jesus told Peter? You go teach them 
to obey all that I have taught you, all that I've commanded. So Peter says, here's why I'm writing these letters. One, I want to stir you up to remember everything the prophets spoke about in the Old Testament. And, and I want to stir you up with the same reverence. Look at what he says. The commandment of the Lord Savior through your apostles. To the writings of these apostles. He's equating the two together. The Old Testament and the New Testament. Both have the same level of reverence in Peter's mind. And if you, if you don't see it yet, keep reading. Um, you're going to catch a jab from Peter to Paul here. They're always jabbing each other in the letters. However, they both acknowledge these texts as sacred and inerrant, infallible, sufficient texts. But they do jab each other. Like Paul says this, about, he's talk, teaching this theology about a different gospel. And he's like, yeah, and I oppose Peter to his face. I'm like, I apologize, you had to put that in there. He just wants you to know, I jumped all in the middle of Peter. Now Peter's going to jab Paul back here. Just letting you know that. However, right, however, this beautiful, beautiful um, Authority comes to us about these texts written. So, and count uh, the patience of our Lord as salvation. We don't have time. Do a, do a word study on patience in the New Testament. It's beautiful. It's this explanation of this coming promise. Think about it. How many hundreds of years were they waiting on this promise? That patience was leading to salvation. So, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul Peter's talking about Paul's writings, also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. So the same way that the Holy Spirit superintended the prophets and superintended the writing of the apostles, he did it through Paul too. I mean, even though their disagreements were public knowledge in the church, Peter is saying the Holy Spirit of God spoke through Paul, and you need to listen to him. Look at what he says. As he does in all his letters, talking about all Paul's letters, he's writing from the wisdom given to him by God, when he speaks in them of these matters. So anytime Paul is writing on these matters, Peter says, I believe the Holy Spirit of God's writing through him, giving him wisdom. Then he says, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. There's the jab. And we agree with Peter, right? Have you ever read the, the book of Romans? Like, there's a lot in there that's thick. And he's not saying that because it's hard to understand, it's not valuable. He's going to say actually quite the contrary. Because you don't understand it, you're twisting it for your own good. Don't twist it. Yeah, it's thick. Yeah, it's deep. But it is beautiful and it is scripture. Look at what he says. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do other what? Scriptures. Peter just called Paul's writing scriptures. That's profound. We know about their public debate. and just, like If there was ever going to be somebody who says, discredit the writings of Paul, it's from Peter. He's not. He's saying, no, quite the contrary. I don't care how deep and how hard to understand they are. They are sacred texts. Peter himself, I mean, Paul himself, in his letter to the Colossians, chapter 4, uh, says some profound things. He starts in verse 14, acknowledging Luke, which is important. Where did Luke come from? He was acknowledged by the apostles. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. Uh, he wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Uh, Luke, the physician, greets you, the beloved physician, as does Demas. Verse 15, give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea. So he's kind of just writing this whole little greeting thing. And to Nympha, this was a person, and the church in her house. So you had a church meeting in Laodicea. You had another church meeting uh, in the house of Nympha. And, uh, and so um, Paul's saying, give my greetings to them. This is what I want you to see, verse 16. And when this letter has been read among you. So what did Paul intend to be done with this letter he's writing? You read it out loud up in front of the church authoritatively. He expected the church to get the letter. Now, if you can imagine getting a letter from Paul, right? And so you're, uh, maybe you're in this like sermon series in Isaiah. 
in Isaiah 53. And on Saturday night, or uh, you know, before it's time for the next day, uh, a messenger shows up and uh, says, oh, I've got a new writing from Paul, okay? The next day you show up for church, you go, hey, we're gonna put Isaiah on hold for a minute, we'll pick that up next week. Today, we're gonna read the writings of Paul. And Paul literally preached through his writings to the churches. So look at what he says. Um, when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. So he intended for this letter then to be transferred and passed along to another church. Look at what he also says. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. So Paul himself is saying, listen, you need to take my letters as authoritative, right? You need to read them in front of the church and you need to swap them with one another. This is your teaching, right? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. Two last things I want to point out. Uh, coming from Paul, uh, in 2 Timothy 3, he's writing to this young pastor and he addresses his view on the text. And he says it this way in verse 16. Paul says, I, basically saying, I believe. But all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. Okay? He's saying two things. One, it's superintended. It's like the, the very breath of God. God wasn't just there inspiring topics for guys to write about. He was literally breathing out words through these guys. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And if you didn't get the point yet, verse 17, that a man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Paul is, is what he's doing is he's bringing up the idea of sufficiency. He's saying these texts alone are sufficient to make you wise for salvation, to train you in godliness, to lead you towards righteousness. He's setting apart the scriptures from extra biblical writings. Like we have profound authors from this day and back then and from today who write amazing interpretations and commentaries on the word that are very helpful. But Paul wants to set them apart and say, but these texts were breathed out by God and they're sufficient in and of themselves. Well, these churches didn't have but just pieces of these scriptures, but they had the word of God. So this is what the apostles were teaching. So we bring this into application, then back to um, Acts 2. Just want to read 41 into 42. These new believers in 41, those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls, and they, the 3,000 souls, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. What I hope you've seen today, these guys, like they held the scriptures canonically, Old and New Testament, as one text. They held it in high regard as sacred. They held it as um, infallible. It accomplishes the mission it sets out to accomplish. It's inerrant. It's perfectly written because the Holy Spirit of God wrote it through these men. Now, let's take our definition of devoted and apply it then, okay? This is where the rubber meets the road for me then as a Christian. Because see, I grew up hearing I needed to read the Bible. But I wasn't, it was a long time before I ever really got why. I knew it was a special book, but I didn't really know why it was a special book. And, and here I'm seeing these believers were devoted, devoted to the word of God. So let's apply our definition. One, if, it's, if to be devoted means to live in close personal relationship with, then to be devoted to the scriptures is this for you and I, to live in close personal relationship with the Bible. Like you're supposed to be in relationship with the word of God. That's profound. Like, I'm supposed to be getting to know it like I'm getting to know my wife. And I'm supposed to be letting it get to know me. Think about that. You've never fully read the Bible until it's fully read you. 
this beautiful relationship between you and the word of God. Second to that, this definition of like continuously moving forward with intense effort despite difficulties. Um, would anybody be honest and say the Bible is a little bit intimidating or hard to understand? I had one person in the first service brave enough, but everybody's face betrayed themselves. Yes, yes, it is, right? It's hard, right? Okay, so if you think about that idea despite difficulty, then think about this. Then our devotion to the word of God is to continuously read, study, meditate on, and apply the Bible to daily living with intense effort with the implication of despite difficulty. Despite difficulty. So you approach the Bible, it is a little bit intimidating, it's a lot, right? And, and so what I hope to have done for you today, first of all, is just to, to bridge this beautiful connection between the scriptures, what they say about themselves, what Jesus says about the text, what the text says about Jesus, and we would see something. I'm gonna show you um, visually what I think this looks like. So here's what the Old Testament is doing. The Old Testament promises a Christ king that would fulfill the promise made to Abraham. We saw that. Um, be born in humility from a virgin in Bethlehem. Live a righteous life teach with authority, be brutally killed. That's just a few of the big topics of the 60, 80, however many you find. Uh, to bring a new blood covenant that will forgive the sins of many and make many righteous and rule God's kingdom as a humble, righteous king. That's what the Old Testament's saying, if you listen to it. It's just screaming this stuff. God's sending a Christ king. Look for him. This is what he'll do. So you have the promise of God pointing to the Christ king. Now the New Testament does this. The New Testament proclaims that Jesus fulfilled, I put 83 plus at least, Old Testament prophecies of the coming Christ King. Jesus is the son of the living God, the savior of man, died and resurrected for the forgiveness of sins for those who would believe. Jesus imputes his righteousness on those who believe. And, and the New Testament says this, the Old and New Testaments together are sacred, inerrant, infallible, and sufficient texts of scripture. So what happens is you get caught in a continuum. This is what it looks like. You have Jesus, right? If we're Christians, we believe, follow Jesus. So then he begins to point us then to the Bible. He begins to point us to the Old Testament. He begins to say all these things about the Old Testament. And then when we get to the Old Testament, what happens? It begins to thrust us back to the New Testament, right? To look for the Christ King. And then the Christ King shows up and goes, I'm here. And all the apostles say, he's here. And then what do they do? They go, we know he's here. Look back to the Old Testament. The Old Testament screams what? Look for the Christ King. And so as soon as you become a Christian, you step into this continuum, starting with Jesus, This is, this is beautiful. This is why the word of God matters. Not because it's a big, thick book that's leather bound, has all these fancy gold letters and all, you know. That's just what man has done to decorate it. It's the beautiful and errant, infallible, sufficient, sacred word of God because God inspired it and we believe that on faith because that's what it says about itself, right? That's what Jesus says about it. All right. So here's what I want to do. Um, those notes are for you to take home and refer to. I've done something else for you that we'll have available from here on out. Um, on the kiosk, some of you know we have our baptism uh, pamphlet there. For those who are thinking about baptism, you want more information, it's all right there for you. We've placed next to that how to read the Bible for life change. It's just a new little help for you. It's a, it's a hermeneutical toolbox for you on how to, if you open it up, it's what to do before you read, what to do while you read, and then what to do after you read to apply God's word to your life for change. On the back, left-hand side, there's some recommendations on study Bibles. Um, we are not a church who says you have to read from this particular version uh, exclusively. I'll use multiple texts and refer to them oftentimes in my teaching. We do recommend some. So there's some study Bibles in there. There's some commentaries we recommend. And then the middle on the back is just probably 15 or 20 websites that we use as staff 
in our personal studies to uh, learn things about theology, learn things about the Bible, learn things about original language. So that's all done for you, and it's on the kiosk on your way out. Snag one of those bad boys and begin using it in your personal Bible study, okay? So I want to close this time of teaching uh, really with a time of prayer. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. And, uh, and so here's, here's the gist of what we've done today. Most of what we've talked about is relevant to you if you are a Christian, right? If you don't believe on Jesus, you've got no reason to jump into this train of thought. We get that. However, what I do want you to know if you're not a Christian is I want you to understand why we hold the Bible in such high regard, why we consider it sacred. Because to believe on Jesus is to believe on what he taught and said. Okay? That's why we believe in the Bible. It's a beautiful historical document. Go to all kinds of reasons why we think it's reliable. However, the reason we put faith in what it says is because we follow Jesus. And I want you to know that invitation is open to you today. That new blood covenant is free for you today. Jesus has shed his blood on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. He has shed his blood on the cross and resurrected from the grave to give you his righteousness. And he wants to do that for you and in you today. That invitation is open. All you have to do is simply believe he is the Christ King, the Son of the living God. And by believing on him, you will have forgiveness of sins and the promise of eternal life. Let me pray for us, and then I'll ask the worship team to lead us as we get finished here. God, we thank you that your word is so beautiful. And God, today we acknowledge that your word is so much more than simply a historical book but that you yourself, working through Moses, working through the prophets, working through the gospel writers, working through the apostles, God, you wrote to us your story. God, the beautiful narrative of a king who creates for himself a people to be called his own. And not only did you create us, Lord Jesus, you did what was necessary to save us and free us from our bondage to your enemy. God, may we from this day forward read the Bible differently. May we read it listening for your voice, looking for the Lord Jesus Christ in every page. That you might use this word on the inside to transform us into who you would have us be. Lord Jesus, we love you. We hail you as king. Come move among us now as we respond in worship.